Welcome to the Redemptions Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. Starting with verse 15. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and in your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. God, we, your people, come before you this morning and we sing praise and glory for you are worthy of it. God, you are our eternal king and and Lord, we pray and we ask that these words we sing would be true of our hearts this morning, God, that your praises, that your worship, that a gratitude of what you have done for us would ever be on our lips and in our hearts And we'd be a people marked by praise, God. Lord, we pray and ask you to come and pour your presence out here this morning to speak to us through your word. God, open our hearts to hear, to open our ears and our minds to believe and to see and just give room for you to work here this morning, God. Lord, would you help each of us die to ourselves and Lord, would you lead and we will follow. Lord, we praise your mighty name, and we pray you be glorified in everything that happens in this place this morning. In your heavenly name we pray. Amen. Man, you can be seated. Good morning. There we go. It's good to be here with you. Uh, today we'll move forward in our series over the book of Ephesians. Um, so I've said it a lot. Uh, I've posted about it online a lot to remind you that we created uh, a pretty cool sermon resource for uh, the body as we go through this, this series. It's the first time we've been able to do that. Um, and really in that, each week it has some processing questions for you uh, to kind of wrestle with before the sermon. So the hope is that uh, you'd be able to read and process a couple of the texts before we preach over it. And then that might be beneficial to you as you see how God kind of speaks to you throughout the week before a sermon is ever uh, preach. So uh, we also have in that guide uh, some theology throughout the book. Um, in the book of Ephesians, there are some things that are uh, kind of difficult. Uh, there's quite a bit about uh, predestination in it. So we have a section in there uh, to just kind of help you wrestle well with that theological uh, issue that just honestly we all have to wrestle with at some point. So uh, the hope is that it would be helpful for you. So go download it, check it out. Uh, we've got it on our planning center groups. 
uh, it's on Realm. Uh, me or Dennis, who did announcements, would be more than happy to email you a copy also if you don't have one. But our hope is that it would be helpful to you uh, to kind of grow through this series and, and look through that a little bit. So uh, our plan for today is, though, to finish the first chapter of this book. So we'll be in what Garrett read, verses 15 uh, through 23 together. Uh, if you wanted to see a good way to look at uh, chapter one just from a, a distance, you could kind of mentally block it off into uh, this. The verse three through 14 uh, was focused on praise. Uh, Paul, when he wrote this book, was praising God for the blessings that, that believers have. And here's that key word that we've used a bunch already, in Christ. So praise is at the front side, and now what we're going to cover today, verses 15 through 23, uh, can really be looked at as a focus on prayer. So praise and prayer, but still even in Paul's prayer, he can't really help himself, and he busts out into praise uh, as well. So uh, we named this series We Are, not just because it sounded catchy or neat to us, but we named this series uh, We Are because Ephesians is relentless to remind you, especially in the first half of the identity that you have in Christ Jesus. This is who you are. This is your identity. This is what you get. Uh, Paul, when he's thinking about that, he kind of sends into this meteoric uh, praise in the front side of the book. So he's thinking about, oh, the fact that we're chosen, the fact that we're adopted, the fact that we are redeemed, forgiven, sealed, as he kind of marinates on that and thinks, this love that is shown to me that I did not deserve, this love that stands outside of my merit, when he begins to just think over it, his only proper thing is to go, praise be to God for that. Like, I, I can't believe that he would do this. So he's sharing with us what we get, and he's marinating himself on what he has in Christ. Christ, and then he praises God because of that. Now, the shift today comes as Paul begins to pray in relation to those blessings uh, for us. So, if you're a believer or a follower of Christ, this prayer in this text will be for the church in Ephesians, but it's actually also going to be for you. Paul is praying for you in this text. Uh, we know that because he's praying a universal hope over all believers or all people who follow the way. This is the prayer for all Christians in all times and in all contexts. So the hope is that that prayer would land on us. And we're going to, I'll just kind of give you the ending already. We're going to kind of sing and pray this prayer over ourselves before we, we leave. We, we believe what he's praying is good. And we're going to kind of enter into that ourselves uh, in song at the very end. But uh, before we break apart this text, I'll ask a question. You know, I, I normally like to do that one that I hope will help us during the sermon and during the, the week. Underneath this question is a, a large struggle for us to wrestle with at all points. Uh, the single question on how you answer it uh, really will frame up so much of your life and your faith in the realm of the everyday. Right? It's going to affect how you live out your faith, but also how you answer this question is going to affect, if we're just honest, like how excited you are or how good your faith is actually for you. Uh, so when he asked the question, I'll also front load this information. Uh, when we answer it uh, in, in your head, you don't have to yell out your answer. Um, answer it from a personal standpoint, right? Not this universal cosmic standpoint. Avoid giving uh, really the, the, the right answer. But when I ask it, just marinate on it for a second. And what is your personal answer of the way you feel? Here's the question. What is the benefit for you being a Christian? You want to make no assumptions if you are one. What is the benefit of you being a Christian? I'll, I'll center in a little bit more. We're actually asking, what is the top benefit? 
of being a Christian? What is the top pro? Uh, if you're following me, what is the end-all, be-all of Christianity? I don't want a list of benefits. What is the very biggest, best benefit that you get personally from being a Christian? This question, when you hear it, may not sound like that big of a question. Uh, it may sound basic. Maybe for some it sounds obvious. Um, but I would argue that it's not basic at all. Uh, at least it's not basic in that the answer that we have, we may cognitively even give the right answer, but it's extremely difficult to live out that answer. It's a wrestle that we have to kind of run into every single day, one that I cyclically have had problems with myself and my walk of faith, and I would wager for you that you've had problems with as well, but we'll get ahead of ourselves a little bit there. What is the answer? The top benefit, the very best benefit of being a Christian. I, uh, I did something that's never a good idea. I Googled that. What is the top benefit of being a Christian? See what the interwebs would say. Uh, and on uh, the list of top results, uh, one heading boasted a fairly confident title. Top, all in caps, four. I was looking for one, but four is still good. Top four benefits of being Christian. Like, it seems pretty legit. They seem like they know the answer. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to click away. Let's see what they have. Uh, and this is what I found. Number one, God changes your perspective. Number two, you're free to be you. Three, now, now you're going to see it's going to go sideways. Peace beyond Pilates. Theologically rich. Number four, no matter what, God has your back. Now those sound like plausible, like Christianese all over that, like these words are like, I think it's kind of Christian. I have no idea what they mean, but it's probably right, right? But as you end up thinking about these top four benefits that they put, I didn't just list them to be cynical, even though I like to do that at times. But it's actually really sad to think somebody wrote this, and many people live as if these are the top blessings of being a Christian. The first one, the whole God changes your perspective. It has bits of truth. He obviously does. Um... There's new lenses that you get to view the world. He changes the way that you see things, the way that you see uh, money and relationships and people and worship. And, and there's so many things it really does change. But that's kind of a weird thing to put at your top. The top benefit of Christianity. Oh, he changed my perspective. I found that weird. But as I read the, the write-up, it explains it basically this way, that God changes you so that your problems aren't so big when you get saved is what they wrote. Well, they just jumped right into the prosperity gospel. God makes things better or feel better for me is what they say, which what's so difficult about that is if you live as if that's the top uh, blessing of Christianity, you're going to be really disappointed and angry at some point. The second one they put, you're free to be you. They're right up on this one. Once you become Christian, you slowly don't care what people think. So you're free to be fully you, and you just don't care if people don't like you. You're free to be yourself, even if people reject you. And while it's true, you can find solace in being accepted by God. I don't know about you, but I don't like being disliked. It sucks to be rejected. So if the big benefit of Christianity is that people, uh, you don't care what people think anymore. If that's what you're supposed to get, and then you live in the, the nitty-gritty of real life, you're like, but I still care. It's problematic, right? It hurts when people reject us. So, like, that can't be the top benefit. It's not even quite true. 
peace beyond Pilates, we won't go into that one very much. It's this weird belief that you're just not going to have stress after you're Christian. That's a false gospel. Uh, and, and that God has your back is the last one. This is probably the biggest reason not to search anything Christian on the internet. They had a picture of a sunset at the top above their write-up, and they basically said this. I'm not even hyperbolizing it that much. 50% of marriages end in divorce. Yours might, but don't worry if it does. God still has your back. You're like, <laughs> thanks. Now, I, I point these out because, like, if we live under weird false beliefs, it's going to hurt us, and we often do that. We, we live under promises or benefits that we assume or demand, and, and they weren't even promised by God or the Bible. Some of them are, are flat-out heretical, and then we walk dead smack into heartache and pain when we believe we're going to get this stuff, and we don't actually get it. It's frustrating. But what about the top benefits that, might, uh, that we may be living under that actually are true, um, but, but maybe believing they are the very top could cause us problems? I, hopefully I haven't lost you yet. A huge one, a huge top benefit that we could live under that could be possibly uh, an issue of tension for us is, is when Christians believe heaven is the supreme good of Christianity. Does that one surprise you? It sure surprised me at one point. I grew up believing in my younger years, my teenage years, my, my younger uh, 20s as well, that the benefit of being Christian was literally and almost entirely heaven. That the good news of the gospel was that I get a, a, a fond final destination, and though that's a great source of hope for anyone who believes, uh, there's a whole lot more than that. Way up on the list, it kind of, it kind of maybe goes next to this one, uh, but one that we can, uh, we can believe in a lot. The top benefit of being Christian is to be forgiven of your sins, but the highest blessing that a gift or gift that a believer can have is being clean, and let me be clear, because I'm not downplaying that like the article I read. That is a wonderful, beautiful blessing. Escape from your slavery in sin. Payment for the thing that you could never, ever pay for on your own. But I'd argue that that isn't the top benefit for being Christian either. All of these benefits are really things that we get from God. They're prizes. They're, 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 they're shiny things that we want him to give us. But the highest good that we get from Christianity isn't that we get things from God. It is that... We get God. I mean, that, that's got to land further. It isn't that you get presents or shiny toys. It's that you have union with the Godhead. I would also argue heaven isn't the end-all, be-all in and of itself. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to go there someday, right? Because it becomes the garden restored. It becomes the, hear me, it becomes the arena, the avenue for unhindered relationship and communion with God. It is the avenue that you get something else in. You get relationship with God in a creation that is no longer broken. It's great because it symbolizes knowing and being with God fully. Or we could say this to, to make sure our minds are wrapping around it right. Heaven isn't just a place that you go and then God drops in like twice a day to make sure all things are cool. That's, that's not what it is. No, it's the place where he is all in all and we experience him all of the time without of our sin and our mess getting in the way. I'm belaboring the point, but heaven isn't just a paradise. It's unity with God and nothing else breaking that. 
We can apply this logic to, the, to, the, to this whole sin argument as the top benefit of being Christian. I want to make sure to not downplay that. That one is fantastic. But why is forgiveness of sins such a big deal? Well, sin is a violation of God's character. We can say that. But the big problem with what that does is sin separates us from knowing God. That's the problem with sin. This is exactly what we see in Genesis 3. When sin entered into humanity, it quickly and devastatingly broke Adam and Eve's and our future ability to connect to and know God personally. So sin isn't a cosmic uh uh-oh that makes God rage against you. It's the very thing that separates you from him. Right? If you believe it's the cosmic uh-oh that makes him rage against you, you have some fire and brimstone under there that grace probably needs to hit. Sin is a choice to connect to and choose other things outside of knowing and connecting to God. When that's out of the way, there's nothing that messes up our connection to him. So the elimination of sin isn't good just because we get clean. It is good because ultimately the byproduct of imputed righteousness of being clean is that we get to draw near to God. That is the benefit. Now check this out. Communion, connecting to, knowing relationally and intimately God. Former sinners, one in, what, what's the number, six, seven billion now? We as one in, in billions of people get to know him. That is the highest benefit. That is the prize. That is the gift of grace. I'll never forget when I heard it for the very first time, and it actually hit my heart this time. Jesus is the prize. Nothing else matters. Jesus isn't the way to get to the prize. Jesus isn't a necessary evil to get what you want. Jesus is the prize. He's all in all. He's what you want. You may not know it yet. He's the prize, though. We so easily get confused by terms like knowing God, or maybe we just become numb to him, that we miss the enormity and the reality of it. But, dudes, think, think of this, and I don't know if this is like misplaced humor or what, but like, the same you who picked his nose and you know what he did next as a kid gets to know God. The same dude who did or persuaded a friend to light a flatulent gets to know God. Insert any other number of extremely dumb things that we do does not get disqualified from knowing the highest power, the source of love, and connecting intimately with Jesus. Ladies, I'm going to not get in trouble. You can do that exercise on your own. The audacity to think that we and all of our stuff get access to know God. Hear me, not just to know about him, but to know him, to connect to him. This is mind-blowing, and like last week, this gift seems almost too good to be true if we really think about it. That's the matter at hand here. Paul's prayer is he's praying and hoping that we would grasp a hold and experience more this exact thing, that we would know God better. Jump into the text again. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So, a little Bible study 101 tip. Uh, Anytime you hear the word therefore or see a phrase like for this reason, you go see what the reason it's there for, right? You, You following me? 
So in this text, what Paul is going to tell us is, is this. In the beginning of the text, he's going, okay, what came before this? Because we have such great blessings in Christ, because believers have been adopted and forgiven and, and sealed and all of those things in Christ, because God puts his mark on our inside and changes our heart from the inside, he goes, because of all of that, word has gotten back to me about your faith and how it has grown in you. And now it has actually got back to me, your love towards each other and your compassion towards other people in the body. Since God's blessings have landed on you and now they've changed you, it's gotten back to me, this progress that has been made in you, and it's amazing to see the fruit in you. So because of that, I'm going to thank God like crazy for you. This is how he opens it. Because of what God's done, he's actually changing you. Thank God this is amazing. Like he's really excited about it. This is so good. Paul is putting into practice a regular rhythm that, that we would do really well to remember. He's recognizing grace in other people. He's recognized grace given to other people and their process of changing. Even if it's slow, he's recognizing what God is doing through the people around him. It is so, so easy. It's low-hanging, weak fruit to be critical in our world. Some think it's their superpower. It's not taking shots at things from a distance. Hear me, because I want to make sure I'm not taking the too hard of a shot. Taking a shot at things from the distance is sinful, it's immature, and it's breaking your heart, and you don't even know it. That's the problem. So Paul says, I'm going to thank God for other people's process and their progress, for the good that I see of God grabbing a hold of them. An author I wrote says that this begs the question out of you and I if we are a part of the church Simple, do you wear glasses of grace or glasses of self-righteousness and self-centeredness towards other people? So he goes, let us thank God in our prayers for the evidences of grace in other people that we're seeing, especially when we see faith and love come out of them. And then he says, let's, let's, let's kind of take it a step further. Encourage others when you see those traces of grace in their life. What a vision this would be. A group of people who prays for each other thanks God for each other, and uses kind, not empty, but kind words when they recognize grace in other people's life. Imagine walking up or having someone walk up to you and be like, man, I've seen your love and your faithfulness and your belief and your trust in God grow, and I see it's changing these other things, and it is so cool, and I'm praying God to thank him about that in you. How would you feel if that happened? I was going, it's just practice of recognizing grace that's good for your heart and it's good for other people and it encourages us and stirs us up. It's why the Bible says uh, stir each other up uh, and outdo each other in, in kind of recognizing what's been done. Verse 17, and it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Here's where we're getting into his prayer for for us. Outside of the thank you, God, here's the prayer for all believers. We want to make sure not to miss the, the forest through the trees in this text. If we wanted to see two major topics of the prayer, thanking God for what's already being done and praying directly that we would know God more fully. That's basically all that happens in here. Think about this, though. Paul finds it crucial to pray that we would know God more. The guy who's a church planting guru, 
Uh, He debated with high powers and culture. He preached to large crowds. He set up elders and deacons over churches all over uh, the the Middle East. He was uh, one of the guys who was really taking the flag to run forward with seeing the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. This guy... He doesn't pray that believers would would all see a massive increase in their attendance at church. That's not his prayer. He doesn't pray that we would all show up to the temple more often. He doesn't pray that we would all start being more generous in giving. He doesn't pray that morality would would change in in this way. As he examined what believers need, as he thought about it, the highest thing that he could see to pray for for you and me is this, that the Holy Spirit would help us know God better. That the Spirit would allow us to see the Father of glory in all his splendor. Church, he's praying that we know about the Father deeply as we connect to him and get closer to him relationally. A deeper knowing, not just cognitive, but also relational. Not just one that affects uh, what you know, but it affects your heart. What's kind of cool about this prayer, though, is even though he didn't pray for all that other stuff, he actually did. He didn't pray for mission. He didn't pray for consistency. He didn't pray for generosity. He didn't pray for for morality like Christ, but he prayed for those all in an incredibly powerful way, in a roundabout way. Paul, he knows something simple and yet profound that I hope that we could understand that knowing God is the key. To be captivated with who God is because you experience him intimately, is the key that will unlock mission, right? Just say, hey, make them more missional. It doesn't necessarily help. Make them know you better, and then they will become missional. What does that look like? It looks like when we become uh, ones who are knowing God more fully and more regularly, we don't feel guilty and decide maybe once every six months to invite someone to church, but we get so captivated by God that we open our lips and tell people about him, think vegan and CrossFitter, right? Maybe hopefully not as annoying as vegans, CrossFitters are not annoying. If we know God more fully, hear this too, attendance won't be an issue. Why? Because being near to God and with his people, it won't legalistically be duty anymore, but it'll be so beautiful that when compared to other options you have, be like, yeah, right. No, I won't go do that. Like, this thing is way, way better than that. As you see God's generosity, you'll become more generous. As you see Christ, you'll be captivated by him and end up becoming more like him. Guys, the key to all places that we and all churches need to go, or the key to all things that we need is really just knowing God better through the work of the Holy Spirit. Any place we need to go, we get there through knowing God more. John Piper says it this way, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Something like this has to be on Paul's mind When he wrote this, that we would know God so deeply that we'd be so enamored and in love that our soul would find what it longs for in him, and we would be satisfied. Charles Spurgeon says this, would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a bed of rest, refreshed and reinvigorated. 
I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling waves of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of God. First of all, I really wish I could write like that dude. Let me make it clear also, Spurgeon wasn't telling you to delve into God and your life will be perfect either. As in your problems will melt away if you just delve into him more. It's not what he's saying. Spurgeon is saying, knowing God, throwing yourself into him is a place to go when you need peace and rest in a really chaotic world. That's what he's saying. He's not saying he'll fix the chaotic world in your here and now. It's a place to go in the chaotic world. The wording is beautiful. Plunge into the Godhead's deepest sea. Get lost in him. Find respite for your weary soul and comfort for your mind. Go taste and see if Christ's goodness isn't unsearchably vast. This begins to remind us of the words of Christ himself. If you think about it, though, Christ called himself the bread of life, saying, whoever would come and eat, whoever would feed off of me will never be hungry again. They would find their soul hunger, their inner thirst met in him when they come regularly and feed off of his person. Again, this is why I contended that knowing God was our highest blessing. If we believe in the Bible and what it says about how we were designed to know the Godhead, to find meaning in the Holy Trinity, to find protection and have our deep longings of our soul met in him is what we were created to do. Friends, if you're a believer here, right, what says you? What do you think of that? How does that land on you? I'll front load this. This is not a bit of shame is hoped in this. But when is the last time you got lost in the goodness of Christ like Paul prayed about? When, when did you do that? When is the last time you said, forget it and cast all other things aside? So you could gaze at God, draw near to him, and hide in his arms. When is the last time you called all other things what they are, tertiary at best? I said, as for me personally today, I'm going to find peace in God. That's what I need. He's got it. I need it. Get out of my way. I'm going. The bills will be here tomorrow. They always are. See, I don't ask these questions again to, to got you you or, or make you feel lame about your walk, much like last week, I'm pointing to a path and a way of life that the Bible presents, and I'm just saying, if you have need, if you are thirsty, if you are weary, if you're desperate for something deep in your soul, why don't you give it a shot? Throw yourself into the Godhead. See what happens. You may find it beautiful. Knowing God was never meant to be duty. It was never meant to be a, a lame job that we have to clock in so many times we're getting fired. It is meant to be where you and I find an ever-flowing fountain of grace and beauty. What exactly are some of the things that we're supposed to find there, though? He'll get into these at the end of this text. 18 through 23, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. 
What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in, the, in this age, but also in the one to come. He is extremely precise there. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him uh, as a head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul says in his prayer that he hopes that the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened or opened. In biblical language, heart is not just an organ that beats in your chest. It is not just the physical mechanism that takes blood and oxygenated blood and all that other stuff to your body. To them, the heart is a metaphor for the functional center of your entire self. Right? It involves uh, your physical being, it involves your spiritual being, it involves your mental being, your emotional state, it, it's where you house your affections, your desires, your posture of life. It is, is the center of you. So Paul says essentially, from the depths of your being, God, I'm praying that they will see you in the deepest part of who they are. Not just to develop a good theological understanding of you over time, but that the inner person of who they are would be enlightened to truly see you and know you. This is what I want for them. Paul's praying, God, show them who you are so fully that they get it as well. That they see what matters, what is really weighty and true in the world refine their ability to see and process who you are and how the world is and how they connect to you. Then Paul kind of splits the prayer into three hopes. Uh, The first hope is that we would um, understand the hope to which we have been called to. To not just cognitively process it, but to feel it in the depth of our soul. The reality of the great hope that we have in Christ. He's praying that we would get it, that we would see it, that we would taste it, that we would know it. How huge and beautiful of a hope that we have. This hope is then ammunition to fight against the difficulty of the world around us. It gives us a reason to fight, a reason to to persevere. The world that we are in is hard. We suffer. We toil. uh, We we feel pain, and we cause pain, but one day glory. Paul says, let let them keep that in view. Paul hopes, second, that we would see more clearly the riches of the inheritance that we have in Christ. We have a way of just turning into Robotic religious creatures, serving God at a distance, strafing around him, robotically operating, doing things maybe even mentally to try and barter or win favor with him, maybe hoping you'll get a smile from, from daddy. And, and we have a tendency to do that to win favor. And then we also have a tendency to do this, to shake an angry fist at the sky when things go sideways, to say, God, I deserve better than this. I feel like you tricked me, like, like I've been bamboozled. Paul hopes that through knowing God better in the good and in the bad stuff of life, that seeing the riches of what we have would change us. 
that we would see that we've already been given far more than we deserve. We've been given uh, the beauty of blessings and an inheritance that are, are far beyond what we can even wrap our minds around. Like earlier in the book, it said the, the, the gates of heaven have been opened. Every heavenly blessing has already been bestowed on you. This is what you get, and it is who you are. Paul, like a good leader, is praying that they'll grasp that. And then third, Paul hopes that we will see the, immer- the immeasurable greatness of God's power. The immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe. And he kind of flexes in this prayer to show us what he means. He says, God, show them the power that rise- raised Christ from the dead. Show them the power that-, that seated Christ up high in the heavenly places. Show them the power in Jesus that is far above, and then he just kind of lists every type of power structure ever to be known. The power that's far above every rule and every authority and every power and every dominion and every name that has existed and will exist. Show them that Jesus is better and stronger. Show them that he puts everything else in subjection to him, meaning they're all under his foot in the the power scale. This is... The reality for believers is this power has been put over the the church, which is us. And it's a promise to never leave us or forsake us, but that power is with the church. Let them live in peace and courage, knowing the power of God and Christ is in their midst. And that was a hard one to grasp our, our mind around. I feel like I don't have words good enough to explain this or to even talk about this. Do you believe that now, that the power of Christ is for you and with you? Not to give you every desire of your heart, but to work powerfully before you for mission and for your ultimate good? And this third one about prayer, it resonates with me. And I texted Garrett that I was going to talk about him, or at least that I had a story. He probably figured it out. Uh, Garrett and I grew up around each other. We've known each other for a very long time uh, since... It was probably 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that area. Uh, so we have some stories to tell. Don't ask us or don't ask him about mine. Um, but Garrett used to hang out in Boonville with uh, two boys known as the Brimer twins. Uh, these were some big dudes. Um, the Brimer twins at a young age were over six foot and near 300 pounds. I don't know if it was middle school or high school. They well eclipsed 300 pounds. They were like linemen who just destroyed everyone in front of them. Uh, And Garrett at a young age was not six foot and not large in structure like them. He played sports with the Brimer twins. He'd run around town with the with the Brimer twins, they did a, a decent bit of stuff together. But one of the benefits of having such large and massive friends who dwarfed everyone was the ability to know that if stuff pops off in a small town, you're good. Right? These big old boys would wreck shop and take, sh- take care of business if things went crazy. Because of that, Garrett would do things with them that he would never do alone. <laughs> right? You talk a good bit of trash in sports and other places and you have a bit of confidence that didn't waver with them. He would bark at guys bigger than him for much longer than seemed wise to do so. Why? Because the power and size of the twins, it made him brave. He knew compared to them, nobody stood a chance, so he embraced that and would walk and talk as if he wasn't scared and could be brave. Well, while that story is always just really fun for me, 
has a ton of value and relevance to this part exactly. It's what Paul is driving at. Through knowing and searching with unfiltered eyes how powerfully strong God is, may the church see that nobody, I mean nothing, can compare to him. That's what Paul's praying. Let the power of Christ embolden you to be courageous. To take on stuff that you would not have alone. To take on stuff that you would never do if that power wasn't with you. And to also help you be steadfast when things get crazy, which they will. Church, if you believe that that power above all things, dominions, power, name, if you really believe that that power was with you, what would you do? Again, this is the really hard part of this. Not cognitively, if you actually believed it, what would you do? What would you take on? What would you attempt if you knew you were backed? This is why Paul prays that we would know the power of Christ on the church. So that we would become, to some degree or another, fearless. Or at least brave not paralyzed by fears of failure and worst-case scenarios all the time as if there wasn't power with us. I'm always looking to clean up from getting us in poor areas. This is not the power to make your business and all things go well. This is power for mission and bravery and ministry and love and compassion to show Jesus the world around you. What would you do? The power to live out Christ's call to make disciples and be the church. What ministry would you start if you believed there was amazing power with you? What radical mission would you take part in if you believe that power is with you? And even if things didn't work out, it doesn't affect your adoption. Super hard to push that down from the head and into the heart, though. This was Paul's prayer, that we would know really deeply, truly know God that we would get lost in him, to lose our life in Christ for the purpose of actually finding life. Right? This is the, the, the thing that you see about the upside-down kingdom in the Gospels, the way the world is and the way it appears. It's opposite of that. Give yourself away. Throw yourself into Christ. That's where you find life. Come, feed off the attributes, the goodness, the hope, and the power of Jesus and see if depth in that relationship isn't more beautiful than you ever thought possible. This front side of Ephesians is, is really all declaration, right? The first three chapters is, this is what's true because of the gospel, right? The, the last three will be, okay, and this is what we do with that information. But because of that, in this front half, when Paul is doing these things and even praying this, he's not giving you a million things to do. He's not even giving you three things to improve on. He's simply matter-of-factly saying, this is the reality of what the gospel gives you and the good news of Jesus does to you. This is the blessing that you get eternally now in Christ from connecting to and being close. And there's a beautiful, beautiful world in life when you connect and know God more. Do you want to walk in it? There's your choice. My hope and prayer for you, and honestly, for myself today, is much like Paul's. God, open the eyes of our hearts so we connect with and know God deeply so that we can understand Philippians 3. Philippians 3 says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
Paul, he goes on to kind of say, you know, like, I, I've experienced everything. I've been all around. There's one thing I know really, really for sure now, though. I've gone so many places and done so many things. Jesus is better than all of them, though. He's better than all else. It is lost to gain everything else if in the process I do not know Christ. Compared to him, everything else is garbage. Everything else doesn't matter. Jesus at that point had become Paul's prize. And that's a hope for us. That's the, pray, the prayer for us that he would become ours as well. That we find life in him because of that. Uh, it, we, we would still enjoy the stuff around us. That we, we would have fun I- in life, but we wouldn't be ruled by all the things around us. Instead, we would be ruled by ruthlessly running after knowing God more in a real way in different rhythms in our life. Let me just tell you this, though. If you want that, it will take effort. You don't fall into it by accident. You plan to it and you walk towards it. But here's the thing. There's a real payoff. I promise you that because Jesus said there would be. As I, I kind of thought of the last month or so for, for me even, uh, the, the language of throw yourself into the Godhead. You're like, yes, no clue what you mean, though. I found, so December, right, Thanksgiving to Christmas, it's a gauntlet. We're running at a ridiculous speed that nobody is programmed to run in. Uh, So chances are the heart's already really tired at that point. I get through the holiday gauntlet. Uh, We we just had a lot of church stuff going on. Uh, Members meetings, this meeting today, there's just been a lot of stuff. That's not looking for sympathy. It's more just saying in the process of a million things going on, uh, I would begin to just kind of turn off at night and like I just poof, fall into a chair, binge a show. Just I just needed to decompress in some way or another. But slowly but surely, I found myself, your heart uh, is this thing that it, it expands and it contracts depending on what you're doing at the point. I was going so fast, and then when I did have free time, I was just shutting off to the point where the heart was just contracting a bit. And so to throw myself into the Godhead, it began going, I know I'm tired. I know these other things sound good. They're not even inherently uh, sinful things. I know checking out sounds good, but instead I'm going to grab a book. I'm going to sit in this chair. I'm going to turn on worship music, and I'm going to slow down the day to marinate on God just a little bit. You would be shocked at how much time slows down when you demand it and you command of it to do what you want in it instead of just let other things drown you out. Life begins to feed into you. Now, what does that look like for you? I don't know. The Bible's a great place to start. A good theological book is a great place to start. Listening to good Christian music at a place to just sit and be still is a good place to start. Just sitting in silence, even though every part of you hates that at moments, is a good place to start. That's what it means to throw yourself into God, is to find things that churn your affections for him and participate in them caveat, they're not sinful things. I just got to throw that one in there. That's what it means. It's literally that simple, and when you do it, you'll be surprised at the way that your heart is able to flourish. And here's the hard news, though. Generally, when you do that for a while, you start feeling it, like, me and God are close, man, I'm just feeling good, and then all of a sudden, you're like, I'm going to Netflix binge again, and it goes back down, and the heart shrinks back down. So the, the ability to consciously fight to know God more 
is really about your rhythms and what you do. To clean up the other area in this, we can always get into these weird spots. We're like, well, that's just duty and that's just legalism. Can I tell you that knowing God more isn't a blessing that he gives you when you do all of these things? Knowing God more is something that happens when you do certain things that God told you to in life and it helps you flourish and the blessing is that you just feel closer to him. I hope that that makes sense. It's not, oh, I'm happy with you here. I'll make you feel closer to me. You go, I want to know you more than other things, so I'm just going to spend some time chasing after you. Then the flourishing that you get is the blessing that you know him better. Got to teach us appropriately to fight, to fight well, to see him well, and just say there is a path to know and feed off of Christ. It is great. The Bible highly recommends it, but it's your choice on what you do with it. We'll take communion Today, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, a great start if you want to try this week to know and connect to a great place to start with that right now. It's just going to be at the table when we do worship. Band, you guys can come back up. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Right, Jesus is giving this to the disciples, and we do it as well, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you'll proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you come to the table, You're proclaiming to the people around you and even to your own heart what God has done. And you can come and take and remember and say, God, this week I want to know you more. I want to chase you more. I want to feel the goodness of what you say is available. I'm going to start at the table. Thank you for what you have given. And that's kind of up to you later this week what you want to do with that. But can I promise you there is beautiful blessing. But you'll have to fight for it a little bit. Will you stand with me? Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do work in us. That we begin to see the world for what it is. That we'd be able to see you more. That we'd be able to see our life. That we'd be able to, uh, some of us are just going way too fast. That we would slow down the runaway train and just be able to see you a little bit. I pray for that. I pray for hearts that know you and connect to you and that are filled up in you. God, I pray that that would be a reality. Thank you for what you've given us. Thank you for the beautiful blessings that are ours in you, Jesus. Teach us, though. Teach us to walk in them. You've given us great gifts. Teach us to pick them up and walk in them. God, I pray for that. May you be glorified in us. Uh, May you be worshiped here. May our songs be good to you. And I pray when we come to the table, we find rest for our souls there and the reality of what you've done. We pray this in your name, God. Amen. We'll play several songs at any point. You're free to come up and take communion. You don't have to be a member here. But I pray that the grace of God would become just very real to you at the table today.
What gift of love could I offer to a king?